0: I'd like to invite you back to Peter's first letter to the people living in the northern portion of what we call Turkey today. And we're going to go to chapter number 1 and start at verse 3. We've we've done this these first few verses already, but I want to kind of use it as a launching pad into the next section. And so Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts blessing upon the Father, but he focuses so much upon Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we have been born again, and this is all because of Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection. That's really important. One of the things that we will discover as we go a little bit farther into our New Testament study is that this weird idea of anti-materialism, which spawned uh, Gnosticism, which taught that All flesh is evil, and all spirit is good, and therefore Jesus couldn't have been in the flesh. Uh, The church was already aware, as Peter is writing this, that that's out there. Uh, Now, John will later hit it harder uh, in his 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but here... Peter says, We've been born again because Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, died and bodily rose again. And because of that, we are going to be resurrected into our own bodies. And so, verse number four, he kind of hits on that a little bit to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading kept in heaven for you. So we have our new bodies waiting for us at the second coming, at the trumpet call, Uh, we'll be resurrected or transformed, and we will be like Jesus in a permanent physical form that is holy, as God originally designed us. Verse number five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Salvation will be complete once we have our new bodies. We've been redeemed in our spirit. The Holy Spirit is guarding us in that situation right now. We're filled with God's Holy Spirit And we're living by faith, day by day, with Jesus, who is the salvation of God, waiting for the completion of the story. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now he begins to get to the something that he wants to expand on as he continues his letter. And that is, we're all excited and happy about the salvation that came through our faith in Jesus. And we're all excited about what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. But in the here and now, we have some problems. We have some difficulties. We have some trials and temptations. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, we're supposed to look at the troubles and the trials of this life as if we were put into the refiner's fire. That's how you make gold and silver more pure. That's how you remove the dross, you put it under high heat. And then it becomes more valuable. And so that's how we're supposed to look at our troubles now, the temptations, the trials now. Uh, It's just a means of getting better at being the holy ones of Jesus Christ. And that will all explode into glory and praise and honor whenever Jesus does split the sky. Now, speaking of Jesus... This is what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, one of the aspects of this book and other books written during this time period, and I think this is probably being written at the latter part of 63. I think Peter likely arrived at Rome sometime in the later portion of 63, but he could have got there at 64, but I think 63 later might be the better time. That's 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's 30 years after the beginning of the church at Jerusalem. And so when Peter is writing this letter to the people living in the northern portion of what we call Turkey today, back in, the, in uh, 63, hardly any of them would have had the opportunity to have met Jesus in person. He says, even though you've never seen him in that bodily form, you still love him. Though you do not see him now, so Jesus ascended on high, so he's not in our physical presence. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. See, faith is not about sight. It's about believing in the evidence that's been given, the testimony that's been given. So you, even though you don't see him, you still believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So you're very excited about this relationship you have with Jesus Christ. And verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the result of putting your faith in he who is salvation. The outcome of your faith is salvation of your souls, being saved. And so that's kind of where we broke off last session. That's the background for verse number 10. Concerning this salvation, that is the death, the atoning death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, his ascension on high, his sending of the Holy Spirit all of these aspects of the gospel story. Concerning that, concerning the fact that we've believed, we've put our faith in that reality. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired inquired carefully. So now Peter is thinking about people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and uh, Zechariah, all these Old Testament prophets, even Moses and Job. These Old Testament prophets, the writers of Scripture, they were trying to understand what they were writing about. Uh, one of the strange things about being a prophet is that you're not always Include in on the message you're passing on. Uh, it's top secret. It's encoded. And uh, unless uh, something prompted God to explain to one of these prophets what they were talking about, uh, they were in the dark, so to speak, just like everybody else, because they weren't serving themselves. Verse number 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of of Christ and the subsequent glories. Uh, So that kind of fine-tunes exactly which prophecies of the Old Testament we're looking at. We're looking at things like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, or we're looking at Psalm 22, uh, the uh, passage... Uh, that is the first-person reflection on the crucifixion. Uh, All of these prophecies were about Jesus dying for our sins, but also resurrecting and being the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the prophets, when they're writing these things down, are going, what's this about? I I know this has got some very basic ideas about suffering. Somebody significant is suffering, but who? Who is it? Or I know this is about somebody who becomes the the king, but who is he? Where does he come from? When is he coming? So these are written by the Old Testament prophets, and they ask the same questions that many of us asked when we first opened those books. But they didn't have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. They didn't have the benefit of the New Testament explanation, the decoding, if you will, of the meaning of all those prophecies. And so all they have is this from God. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preached the good twos to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. And so these Old Testament prophets, if they asked God, were told it's not for you. It's for someone farther down the time stream. It's for those that will see these things happen. You see something similar uh, of the concept here when when Daniel is told to seal up the book of his prophecy. Just close it up, you're finished, Uh, it'll be revealed at a later date. People will understand it when it starts taking place. Now, the people of the New Testament era were the first ones to start having the decoding done for them. When the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, began talking about how Jesus was the suffering servant, that he was the one uh, who was crucified and resurrected again, whose body was not allowed to decay. Whenever uh, the New Testament writers of the Gospels said, this happened in order to fulfill that which was spoken by. And then they start quoting from one of the Old Testament prophets. So that was announced to the first generation of the church and to the generation after that, the one that we're looking at right here, uh, the one that Peter is addressing. And the Holy Spirit is the orchestrator of this gospel preaching, Of this teaching to those that need to know how prophecy was fulfilled. And it's interesting, he throws this little line in that is intriguing to me that even the angels long to look into these things. Even the holy angels of God were not clued in, they were not read in on the top secret information. When Gabriel went on his missions to planet Earth, he was not privy to all the fine details as to how it was going to be fulfilled. Uh, The angels, I think, were just as shocked as anyone else when Jesus died that day and may have been even quite... Excited because of the surprise when he resurrected again. Uh, Because these are things that some of them had been passing information along uh, as the messengers of God for centuries, for millennia. And then now, here it is happening right in front of them. Uh, But it's not just then. Remember, we're still waiting for the rest of the story to be fulfilled. The things related to the second coming of Jesus are prophetic. They are encoded in a top-secret fashion so as to not be clearly understood until they start happening. And so the angels are probably even now longing to look into those things and understand them, just like we are are intrigued by future prophecy and wish we could figure it all out. Peter now does this. He transitions to what should you be doing based on all these things that he's just been talking about. The fact that, uh, that we've got this gospel message, it goes way back in time when it was top secret information, but it's being fulfilled now in front of your eyes, and you're understanding it, what are you supposed to do with that information? Verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. It's an interesting little first century idiom here, by the way. Girding the loins of your mind. Um, The idea was everybody, men and women, wore uh, robes, Uh, that hung down probably below their knees at the very least and if you're out uh, needing to work or move quick then you would reach down between your legs back behind uh, and grab that tail of your robe and pull it up between uh, your thighs and tuck it into your belt and you basically made athletic shorts you made culottes you made uh, running shorts for yourself by doing that And so that was called girding your loins. Uh, Here, Peter says, gird the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready to move. And being sober-minded, so we need to not be out of sorts, we need to be level-headed. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's about three times now in the first few uh, paragraphs of this letter that Peter keeps going back to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You think that might be a pretty important thing for Christians to be focused on? Uh, So we need to set our hope on that grace, that is that fullness of the story that's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back. Uh, keeping our eyes on the future will keep us well focused in the present. Uh, because, as John will later write, everyone who has their hope set upon seeing Jesus just as he is, that is, at his second coming, will commit themselves to being holy, that is, They will purify themselves just as Jesus is pure. Well, that's that's the thrust of Peter's story here, is he wants us to stay focused on the future when Jesus is coming back to finish the story because that will make you behave yourself properly now. Verse 14, as obedient children, see, we're the children of God, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, So we've talked about this idea before that we have natural inclinations, we have natural desires, which can get out of whack. And sometimes they can get out of whack because of environmental reasons, because of cultural reasons, because of societal reasons. We're, We're being kind of pushed to cross the lines that God put in place. And so Peter says, if you're going to be God's obedient children, then don't be conformed to the old way of doing things. Uh, You've heard me say that I believe Peter has been reading Paul's writings. Remember in the book of Romans, chapter number 12, that We are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's that same word for uh, being conformed here. So don't be conformed to the passions of this current world, because you used to be part of it, but you're not anymore. Instead, verse 15, "...as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Holy is a a church word. It's a a fancy word for being dedicated to something specific. In the case of God, I think the specificity is God's character. God made us in his image and his likeness because he wanted us to be like him, to do things the right way, the God way. And so when when Peter writes here, he, as he who called you, is holy, that is, his character is a certain way. You also be holy in all your conduct, so you conform to that same godlike character. Since it is written, and so he goes back to the Old Testament... Uh, Leviticus 11.44 seems to be where this exact quote comes from, but it's repeated multiple times in the writings of Moses and after. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he just said, you guys should be thinking of yourself as obedient children. And Now he says in verse 17, if you really do consider God, the creator of the universe, as your father, then you should also know that he is perfectly fair with everyone. And so if you are holy as he is holy, he will reward that. But if you are unholy, then he will judge that. And so we, as the children of God, don't want to be in trouble with our Father. And so we will be fearful in the sense of uh, not terrorized by God, but rather we're, we're fearful that he will not approve of how we're living, because we want our Father to be proud of us. And so we need to live uh, in fear throughout this time of our exile. Now, you may remember at the very beginning of this letter, he's addressing it to people who are part of the exiles of the diaspora. When Israel was taken into that's northern Israel, was taken into Assyrian captivity back in 722 B.C., and then southern Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity in 587 B.C. Uh, They had a timeout outside of the Promised Land, and during that timeout many of the ethnic Israelis that were born just simply established communities, family groups in those scattered places all over uh, the upper Middle East, including in this very area that Peter's writing back to. Uh, When the returns started happening, uh, not all the Jewish people went back to the place of their ancestry. In fact, the vast majority of them stayed in the Jewish communities where they were. So that becomes the core of what we refer to as these exile groups of the diaspora, the spreading out. Uh, So they didn't think of themselves simply as locals. They thought of themselves as Israelis living in a foreign land. And so that's the attitude Peter says we should have toward living here, (coughs) excuse me, on planet Earth in this sinful world. We should consider ourselves, he'll eventually get around to this, citizens of heaven living in a foreign country. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things like silver or gold. Uh, so he's he's throwing a whole bunch of stuff at us at the exact same time here. Uh, he says, you were ransomed out of your sinfulness, not with monetary things, not with silver and gold, because that's just part of this world system that's going to disappear. It's going to burn up. He'll eventually get around to telling us that. So, you are different than everybody else around you in the country where you live because you've been redeemed, not by physical things, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this is part of the Christian story. This is part of the gospel story. Uh, John the Immerser said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, this, this redemption price is beyond value. It is beyond comprehension because he is the perfect sacrificial lamb. Verse 20 tells us how far the story goes back he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So God had already determined before he said a single word of creation that Jesus was going to be the means of redeeming those that were lost. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, that is, was made clear, was made clear, obvious to the world, in the last times for the sake of you. So, the last times he has in mind here in this context is in the first century, in the time when Jesus was the incarnate Savior, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the story all comes together for our benefit here at the first century when Jesus dies and rises again to save all believers from their sins. Uh, his death and resurrection brings Jesus' glory, but not just Jesus. Because of our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, it brings us the hope of that same resurrection in glory.